pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pretty much everybody prays. Listen to the soundtrack in the background of 9-11, and you will hear cries to God for help. I remember speaking at a remembrance service for a battalion in the British Army that had recently been to Helmand. I was picked up from the airport by one of the soldiers. His armoured vehicle had been hit in Helmand. He was the driver. He'd been driven up into the cupola and was there paralysed, unable to move. What did you do? I prayed. Apparently, on that tour, as in so much of the rest of the British Army today, before every patrol went out, Fijian soldiers attached to the battalion had stood and led those who were about to go into active service in prayer. I was speaking to a friend just the other day. They used to be a hardened atheist. What changed? For various reasons, I found myself in the most impossible of situations and in acute pain. I found myself praying in the middle of the night. When I woke up the next day, I thought, I prayed. John Newton, who wrote the words to Amazing Grace, that famous hymn, how and why did he become a Christian? Oh, in a storm at sea, fearing shipwreck, he cried out to God. <laughs> when he hit the land, he thought, what on earth did I pray for? I'm an atheist. Pretty much everybody, at some stage or another, prays. And today we come to the very heart, thematically, of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Right at its core, the very centerpiece of the sermon, is the Lord's Prayer. And here we have the masterclass on prayer. We're going to run from verse 5 through to the end of the section there, to verse 15. And I want to see that Christian prayer is real relationship, not rote ritual, that Christian prayer puts first things first, and that Christian prayer is genuine, not fake. A real relationship. The, the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father, and that distinguishes Christian prayer from all other prayer. Because before we reach out to God in prayer, God has reached down to us with pardon. And so the Christian knows God as Father. It's a real relationship. 
You may remember the Sermon on the Mount began with Jesus' assurance, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To be righteous is to have a right standing before God. Jesus came to bring reconciliation between us and God. Jesus has won free forgiveness for men and women so we can be in right relationship with our Father. And so Christian prayer is relational. And to show how it distinguishes Christian prayer from all other prayer, just have a look at verses 5 and 6. When you pray, you mustn't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the hypocrite has his eye on the wrong audience, and the hypocrite seeks the reward of being seen by people. The Christian, in relationship with God, knows his father in heaven and knows that his father in heaven hears him or her. He, she prays to the audience of one. But then verses 7 and 8 direct her attention to other kinds of prayer, non-Christian prayer. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, the nations do. They think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So the person who's not Christian doesn't have a relationship with God. The non-Christian feels the need to twist God's arm, to attract God's attention, to use many words, almost to blackmail God, to bribe or bulldoze God into action. Come on, God, aren't you listening? Listen how many times I've said it. The classic example in the Bible is the prophets of Baal at the altar on Mount Carmel. They cut themselves, they dance, they shout and scream, they repeat their chants by rote, they roll around on the floor to try and get God's attention. They think prayer is transactional. If I do enough to force God's hand, he's bound to take note of me. So I'll say it over and over and over again, force him into it. Elijah taunts them, maybe God's busy. Perhaps he's on an off-site, he's popped abroad. Maybe he's in the gents, relieving himself. I don't know if you noticed the BBC video feed of the Shinto ritual ice bath ceremony, a New Year event at Tapazu Inari Shrine, with devotees dressed only in loincloths and bizarrely face masks, standing in the pond with vast ice blocks and rising water, chanting in hopes of bringing God's blessing. Kind of the more pain I suffer, the more serious I appear. The more serious I appear, the more God is bound to notice. The more God notices, the more chance I have of securing his favor. A once Hindu friend of mine said to me yesterday that he was told that if he chanted this mantra a hundred times, God wouldn't hear, but on the hundred and first, he would. So Christian prayer is radically different to this coin-in-the-slot wishful thinking of pagan prayer. Our Father in heaven. It's also so different to me seeking some inner resource within myself. We're not talking self-help or self-empowerment here, are we? We speak to God. We reach out to God because God has reached down to us, our Father in heaven.
When you pray, go into your room in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The reward is the relationship and exploring it and developing it. Some of us will remember V.J. Menon. And V.J. used to say this, we pray to our Father in heaven, the door is always open, God is always listening, he will always answer. J.C. Rao has this marvelous comment, we should endeavor to find some place where no mortal eye sees us and where we can pour out our hearts with the feeling that no one is looking at us but God. Now, I don't know about you, but I think immediately this challenges all sorts of thoughts and practices of prayer. Do you know, even with a sure knowledge that we have a relationship with our Father in heaven, how often our prayer is really a matter of rote. I have various prayer lists. How easily I can just find myself ticking the box and not really praying our Father in heaven. And then there's a the kind of prayer that kind of thinks we need the help of Mary or of the saints or of a priest. No, Jesus died for you. God loves you. He is our Father in heaven. The door is always open. God is always listening. He will always answer. We don't need to attract his attention. He has attracted ours. And he's listening. And we don't need some sort of go-between. John Chapman, the famous Australian evangelist, was wonderfully down to earth. And he t tells the story, used to tell the story of walking along the street one day in a dog collar for some reason. He never used to wear one normally, but there he was walking. And somebody shouted across the street from the other side, say a prayer for me, reverend. To which he replied, say one for yourself, you lazy coot. Now think of your own children when you are your best self. You know, they don't have to jump through hurdles to get your attention. They don't have to twist your arm when you're your best self. God is good. God is kind. God is loving. He wants the best for us. He cares. He knows. He knows our needs, not our greeds. He knows them as well, but he answers our needs. He knows our needs. He's listening. Ask someone, if God knows what I need before I ask him, why bother? Well, because prayer is relational. And he wants us to ask, and he loves to answer. The privilege of it. Real relationship, not rote ritual. But because it's real relationship, Christian prayer puts first things first. And the Lord's Prayer contains seven requests. The first three have to do with God's name being hallowed, God's kingdom being established, and God's will being done here on earth took me many years before I realized that these were three requests. Our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Hallowed be your name. It's a, a desire that personally, in my family, across my neighborhood, in my workplace, everything God stands for, God himself, all that God is and does would be held in high honor. Holy means set apart. To hallow something 
Well, it's to see it set apart for what it is, held to be holy. Hallowing the name of God, well, it used at least to be a spoken concern in the city. Stand in front of the Royal Exchange Building, look up, and you'll see there printed or carved, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Walk up London Wall, there in wrought iron, honor God. Cycle across London Bridge, look up the Fishmonger's Hall, all worship be to God alone, hallowed be your name. And where God's name is hallowed, human beings flourish. Of course, because God is good, God is kind, God is compassionate, God is patient, God is faithful, God is loving, God is true, God honors integrity. And so where God's name is honored and hallowed, all these glorious virtues are held high. Wherever the person and name of God and of his son Jesus is hallowed, there men and women flourish. Where God's name is not hallowed, treated with deepest adoration and respect, what are we left with? Human values, man-made motives, utilitarian principles. How demeaning. Your kingdom come is a prayer both for now and for then. The kingdom is about the rule of God and the rule of his king Jesus. And to pray, to pray your kingdom come is for now a prayer for the advance of God's rule, both within the church, amongst us, and beyond. But it's also a prayer for then. Your kingdom come is a prayer for the establishing of Jesus' kingdom at his return. So we pray your kingdom come looking for edification, that is the upbuilding of one another as we come more and more under the rule of King Jesus. And we pray your kingdom come for our office, for our family, longing that our colleagues and friends and loved ones will come under the rule of King Jesus. And we pray your kingdom come asking the Lord Jesus to return in his glory and bring in his heavenly new creation. And your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a request that whatever we may want, God's will might be done as it is perfectly in heaven. Jesus prayed that, didn't he, in the garden in Gethsemane with sweat dropping like blood from him, contemplating the horror of the cross. Father, take this cup from me, nevertheless not my will, but your will be done. And so the first three of the seven requests are all to do with God. True Christian prayer puts me in the right place. True Christian prayer puts first things first. True Christian prayer is not primarily about me, it's about him. True Christian prayer is not my bucket list, it's his business. And this is big stuff, isn't it? Hallowed be your name. I mean, what a wonderful prayer to pray for the building in which you work. Some of you in buildings with, what, three, five, seven thousand people. May your name be hallowed, metaphorically. Honor God, stamped above the door of the building with everybody longing to do that. May your kingdom come. May people come under the rule of King Jesus. I mean, what if all of us were praying this day by day by day? You know, 
two or three of the most fruitful and influential people I know in the city have been people who've set aside an hour a week, a lunch hour, in the days when they existed, half an hour on the, tube, on the way home, to pray for the people of their offices. I was part of a workplace prayer group way, way ago, back in 1985. And as I look back, I think the prayers that were prayed there were just so small. I remember one time, a prayer being offered for somebody's grandmother's cat. But the kind of, Lord, help me to get a good sleep tonight, or please may there be a sunny day tomorrow, you know, it's kind of not quite in the same league as hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. First things first. And really then, only the born-again Christian convert can truly pray the Lord's Prayer. Do we have a relationship with God? We'll want his name to be honored. Do we know the Father in heaven? We'll want his kingly rule to advance. Do we speak personally and intimately with our Creator? Well, we will wish only for his will to be done. And once we're in a right place before our Father, we're free to pray for ourselves. But have you noticed how the second four group, or rather the last four of the seven requests, they're not so much, again, to do with me and my little desires as to do with God and his work. Give us today our daily bread speaks as much of our spiritual as our physical needs. Literally, it reads, give us today the bread for tomorrow. And of course, in a subsistence culture where what I earn today put food on the table for tomorrow, daily bread was a pressing necessity. But the idea of bread for tomorrow conjures up images of the Israelites in the wilderness on their spiritual journey to the promised land where God provided heavenly manna every evening for the day ahead. So to say to a Jew, pray, give us today our bread for tomorrow, they would immediately be thinking, oh, I'm on a spiritual journey. Lord, give me what I need. And therefore, the bread for tomorrow, it's not simply the mortgage being paid or the food on the table. It's that I am fed sufficiently spiritually to stand firm tomorrow. Does the name William Williams mean anything to you, other than that he must be Welsh? Bread of heaven, guide me, O thou great Jehovah. I can see one or two of you Welsh, you're planning to sing it. Is it at Twickenham this year? I can't remember, or Cardiff. No, it's the other place. Yes, before you get thrashed. But anyway, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. He understood the Lord's Prayer. And I wonder if we pray the right things for ourselves enough. So it's so striking, isn't it? Your father knows what we need before we ask him. But Jesus tells us to pray about God's will, God's kingdom, God's name, our spiritual necessities.
that God will give us what we need for today to live a consistent Christian life tomorrow. I wonder when we last prayed that for ourselves. That God will feed me from his word today so that I can stand as a Christian tomorrow. That God will sustain us in the battle of living with him. That God will hold us with his powerful hand. That God will advance his work within us. Forgive us our sins is really interesting. I mean, how many times have you prayed the Lord's Prayer? It is such an interesting thing to come at number five. When you think of the way so many of our Christian meetings are constructed, the Lord Jesus tells us to ask for forgiveness, number five on the list. So we come to the Father as already forgiven children of his heavenly family. We meet together as those who are already his children. We've come to him. We have a right status before him. Do you remember what he said to the disciples in the upper room? Whoever's had a bath needs only to have his feet washed. You know, it's not like snakes and ladders where you get to number 99 and you go all the way back to the beginning. You have to start all over again. No, but you do need your feet washed. And so, Father, please forgive me. Yes, yesterday this, this afternoon that. But there is an assumption that having experienced forgiveness ourselves, we are those who practice forgiveness ourselves. And so the person who has understood that they've been forgiven a mountain of debt will be quick to forgive others a small molehill. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The parable in Matthew 18 is so helpful on that, isn't there, where the debtor lets the man off for literally millions of pounds that he can never in a thousand years repay. And then the man who'd been let off finds a guy who owes him just a couple of hundred quid and has him up against the wall and then chucks him into prison. How many times should I forgive others? Seven times? No, 70 times seven, remember just how much we've been forgiven. And if we find it hard to forgive, the place to look is the cross to realize how much Jesus forgave us and what it cost him. And then we will find from within an ability to forgive. So do we approach God as Father? Do we seek the Father's enabling for our daily walk? Do we ask him for forgiveness? Do we ensure that we ourselves have forgiven those who sin against us? The last two have to do with threats, don't they? Do we pray that we be not led into temptation? And do we pray that we might not be confronted by the evil one? If we don't, then we're presumptuous. This book by Alistair Begg, Pray Big, is on the bookstall. It can be yours, I think, for just six pounds. It's an outstanding book. Chapter one, to pray is an admission and and an expression of dependence. A self-assured person is not going to pray. Lead us not into temptation. How long can we be trusted? Well, God thinks we can't even be trusted for 24 hours. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Lord, lead us not into temptation. And the prayer against temptation is not a kind of charm or an amulet or a string of garlic 
to ward everything off such that we can then carry on regardless. To pray, lead us not into temptation, but I'll just keep the bottle here on the table just in case you do. Or to pray, lead me not into temptation, but I'll just invite her out anyway in case you do, is to treat the whole thing wrongly. Deliver us from the evil one. There's a real enemy. So here is Christian prayer. Some people have a kind of mnemonic, sorry, thank you, others, please, stop. It seems a strange mnemonic to have if you're encouraging someone to start prayer. But anyway, sorry, thank you, others, please. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, acts. Jesus has given us the Lord's Prayer. I recommend it. Your own mnemonic may be helpful, but I think the Lord's Prayer is what he's given us. And the rabbis used to teach people to have headings and then to fill it out. And I think that's a very good way to structure one's prayers. Beginning, our Father in heaven, thank you that you died for me, Lord Jesus. I'm in relationship. And then your name be hallowed in all these different circumstances, perhaps one area one day and another area another day. Your kingdom come in the lives of my children, my own life and so on and so forth. I recommend this book here, Pray Big, by Alistair Begg. There are quite a few copies on the bookstore. Here we have Christian prayer. Relationship not rote, first things first, genuine, not fake. And the last two verses build out on request number five, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, Uh, I would recommend you'll find on the website a a talk on Matthew 18 containing a whole section on this. Just a few weeks ago, I was given the privilege of being shown round St. James's Palace officers' quarters for the King's Guard. So the people guarding Buckingham Palace, the officers who are in charge of the guys guarding Buckingham, have a particular couple of rooms where they live. It's a fascinating room with all sorts of extraordinary features. One of only four portraits of Queen Victoria not wearing black. They hid it when she demanded they all be blacked out. A full-length portrait of a young officer who was asked to find some paintings for the officer's mess there and so had one commissioned of himself, which was rather splendid. So you've got general somebody, generals of somebody else, Queen Victoria, and me, second lieutenant, Somebody, whoever it happens to be. It wasn't me, by the way. But over in the corner, there's a telephone. And apparently, you pick the telephone up, it goes straight through to the royal family. Well, actually, it doesn't anymore, because unfortunately, the line's been cut. But it did. It really did. And it really was true that you would pick the telephone up, and frequently, it'd be the queen mother who answered, or the queen herself. In Christian prayer, we have direct access to the creator of the universe. And it's a wonderful prayer, isn't it, the Lord's Prayer? Because it teaches us how to pray. It reminds us of our relationship. Puts first things first. And is genuine, not fake. Can I encourage all of us to find time to go into your closet, to a room, Find somewhere on a daily basis where we can pray for ourselves, for the city. It would be most bizarre, however, 
to have a talk on the Lord's Prayer and not to pray it? Shall we do that together now? I hope you've got the copy in front of you. Matthew chapter 6. Just find the page if you've missed it. I'll lead us, but let's all pray it slowly. And now with understanding we trust. Pray then, like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.